honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. It is a pretty common term. Uh, it's a pretty consistent conversation in mental health to talk about someone in the family who's been enabling the person who is struggling with uh, destructive behaviors, whether those destructive behaviors are inwardly focused or outwardly focused. On the cover of my uh, Parenting Teens That Struggle workshop workbook or our Parent Weekend workbook that the, the families get who attend this workshop, is a quote that says, if the rule led to this, of what use is the rule? Now, I bring that up because when families finally decide to seek counseling or to seek advice or to seek someone to tell them what to do differently, there inevitably is a resistance to the people actually changing. I find that parents bring children to our facility with a list of issues that the children have and want to know how we can fix them, want to know how long it's going to take for their children to get fixed, like their child is a car and I'm an auto mechanic. And we do have parents who swing through and say, here's my kiddo, I'll be back in four months. And we don't work with those types of families. We make it very clear out of the gate that this is not a broken child, this is a broken system. And to acknowledge the broken system, we have to address and confront the components of the system that created the system. A nice way of saying what I just said is everything you've been doing with your child has gotten you to this point. And if you want something different to happen, then you've got to do something different. It's hard for parents to hear that. It's hard for parent, for any parent, to be called an enabler. And to be quite honest, I resist, I resist that topic. I, I have another episode called uh, The E-Word. I really have an aversion to the idea of uh, sitting with a parent and calling out enabling behaviors. But it has to be done. And it's not that I don't call parents out. It's that that word has been overused and I felt 
uh, a numbness to it. So then I met Dr. Katie Parker and she started talking about uh, this book that she's working on about the CEO, the chief enabling officer. And it reframed the concept for me. So I brought her on the show to talk to parents about enabling. I want you to hear from someone who is tackling the concept dead on. I want you to understand what the difference between enabling and codependency is. I want you to truly understand how subtle and how outwardly outrageous enabling behaviors can be. So we're bringing on the expert for that. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. My guest this week is Dr. Katie Parker. Doc, thank you so much for being here. My God, this was a, a challenge for us to get here. You've been sick, I've been sick, and then today both of our internets decided not to play along, but here we are. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad we finally connected that the, the you know, stars aligned and we actually made the same work. So I you can only say stars aligned because I used to live in Boulder and you live in California. So <laughs> right. we're the only two people. <laughs> we understand what that means. Um, you were, you were going to do this from your car because you've got like 15 animals running around, but you're actually in an office. It looks great. Um, I'm in my bedroom, ironically. I just made it look like an office from this vantage point. If I were to pivot this around, you would see the hot mess that is my bedroom. So. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Well, yeah. the hot mess is my office. Um, and fortunately, uh, I'm allowed to sleep in my bedroom at times. Um, okay. Let's jump into it. First of all, let's let's give the parents, your credentials, because you got a lot of syllables after your name. I only have the syllables SOB. You've got a lot more cool ones behind your name. So let's talk to parents about who you are, what you got, and how you ended up here. Uh, so I have a bachelor's, a master's, and a doctorate in clinical psychology. Um, that just means I spent a lot of time and money to get where I am. For all of those fancy <laughs> letters after my name, that's really all it means. And I'm not sure who's smarter, the SOB or me, because really, you didn't have to spend all the time and money that I did to get here. And we're here we are talking together, so clearly. Yeah. All right, I'll take it. So, but, but talk to the parents also about uh, what, you're, what you're currently doing, how you're using all this money uh, you spent uh, wisely, and where you hang your certificates. Mm. Theoretically, it's wisely. Um, so I do a, a number of things. One is that I run an intensive outpatient program um, and part of doing that is helping families. So on Saturdays, I sit with the families of clients currently in the IOP, as well as anyone in the community who's struggling with a family member that is just having issues, whether that's mental health issues or substance use issues or the combination thereof, which it likely almost always is. Um, that really is what I'm looking at. So over time, I realized that my own story of um, enabling and enabling my husband for six years uh, through his early stuff, substance use history. Um, my part of that kept him sick and stuck for a really long time, much longer than it had to be. So um, now talking to the families and loved ones of people who are also struggling and they're in relationship to that, I'm noticing the same patterns, which is um, what they do keeps their loved ones sick and stuck and they don't know that that's what they're doing. They're doing what they're doing and it feels like love. It feels like care. It feels like 
um, the right thing. And it's because of that delusional perspective, and I mean that in the kindest, most loving way, delusional um, perspective that they're giving love when they're actually hurting. It's a really hard pattern to stop. It's a really hard one to look at for what it is. And it's really, it's really difficult for both people, both the loved one struggling and the one who's in relationship to it. So, so what you, you are actually like came right out and admitted that you were the CEO of your marriage. Oh, absolutely. I was fantastic in that capacity. I would have won awards had they given them out. I was amazing in that capacity. Do you find that introducing that to, to parents or, or uh, other couples who are struggling where you're say, so I did this and I have all these letters after my name. And so it makes sense. Does that, does that allow parents to realize? No one wants to hear their, their enablers. No, yeah, nobody does. Cool. It's shameful, right? It's shameful. So um, I use my big fancy letters and all everything to say, I should have known better. And I still fell victim to it. I still found myself trapped and ensnared just the way the loved one struggling with addiction or any kind of other issues as ensnared. I also became ensnared. I became caught up in the system. We fall into it just like they do. We are trapped. How, how does this happen? How does one who has a dislike of behaviors, of the destructive patterns that go on with addiction and sometimes even mental health issues. How does one fall into the trap? Before we talk about the specifics of the behaviors that an enabler does yeah. or the CEO does, how does one end up being in it? What, what is going on in the, in the, in the, mem the big membrane to say, ignore that, you know better, but just do it anyway. I think because it feels like love and it feels like caring. And because of that feeling sense that you're showing how much you care for your loved one by doing X, Y, and Z, that that combination keeps us, the CEOs, doing what we do. And it keeps our loved ones wanting us to do what we do because it's only helping enable their bad behavior. How much responsibility does a CEO have to take? You, you've used the words, and I really like it because it flows well, uh, sick and stuck, sick and stuck. And that the CEO's behaviors that feel like love and caring can keep someone sick and stuck. How much responsibility does an enabler, a CEO, take for the situation they're in? Half. 50%? Yeah. Wow. They're a willing participant in what's going on in every way, shape, and form, whether they want to admit that or not. And it's hard to admit because you're like, no, but I love my person. I would never do anything to hurt them. I'm trying to help. And, and, and you want them to stop. You, you want desperately want them to stop. And the whole thing is they're taking control of pieces that they have no business being in. They can't control the pieces they think they're controlling. That's part of what the enabler does. They're doing okay. exactly what the addict does. It's a parallel process. All right. Let's. I'm sure there's a million things to talk about in this parallel process. Let's. So let's let's talk about it. You you said controlling things when when it's the serenity prayer, basically. Yeah. When we're when we're talking to families at the parenting teens at struggle workshop or or the parent weekend that we do, we ask the question. You know, you know, do I take away the cell phone and you know lock them down in the house and stuff, and they sneak out and you know they they go to Starbucks and get online there and blah blah blah. You have to ask the question: What can you control? And they come up with their list, and we say, okay, now look at that list. Now, what can you control really? Um, 
they cross out nine tenths of the list. So what are the things that the CEOs are trying to control that are just, you see it all the time. You, you tell them and it's the first time they've ever realized that they can't control it, but you've seen every CEO, uh, this chief enabling officer, it's, it's the repeating pattern. What are, what are some of the things? Well, I know for me and I see it over and over again, it's, it's almost like I, I proposed it. Like if I only show you this piece of evidence, you're going to stop doing what you're doing. Like clearly it, when I provide you all of the evidence to support the fact that you should stop what you're doing, you'll stop. So number one, thinking we can control what somebody else does, the choices that they make. We think that we have some sort of bearing on that conversation and we don't. Because if we did, they wouldn't be doing it. Everybody would be cured. The CEO's job would have been well done. Nobody would have the issues that they have. If the CEO's job was really effective, if I can provide you evidence and you will stop doing it, then this system would have been long since dismantled. But the fact is the loved one's still doing whatever the heck they want to do and the CEO is still thinking that they can control it. So when you talk about evidence, you're talking about the mother, the boyfriend, the father, the, the, the girlfriend, wife, husband that is pulling up the next Google article offers the, the latest research that's been done about exercise and anxiety or something like that, trying to say, try this, keep trying this. What about this? Have you considered this or is it deeper than that? It's, it's that. I think it starts there and then it parlays into, well, maybe if I have a baby, like then you're going to stop speaking firsthand. Right. Maybe a child is going to make you realize that you can't act like this. Did I consciously get pregnant? No. But I definitely feel like that was a thought in my mind as I realized I was pregnant. Oh, now he's clearly going to have this will get him to stop. He will see he cannot continue to drink and do drugs with having a child. Why? It's crazy, right? It sounds completely insane. because it, it does. It's insane. Because it, the way the addict is insane over the addiction thing, we also get roped into the same pattern. That's the parallel process. As he gets sicker, so do I. As he thinks he can control his use, I think I can also control his use. That sounds so silly. No, it, but, it, but it's, it's remarkable because as you're saying this, I think of some of the things I did as an addict and I look back from this space and I was like, that's crazy. Like, how did I rationalize that? How did I think that that made sense? But, but when we talk about families bringing a child into it, that that's going to fix everything because they'll wake up to the responsibility that is necessary to accomplish this next part of our life. And they don't. And we have no evidence that they would. Ever. Nothing in the history provides us any reason why this is going to be the case. Why this evidence is going to do this change. It's not going to. It never has. If it had, we wouldn't be in the position we're in. Which is we're still trying to wrestle with something that is not ours to wrestle with. And we do. We completely deny the things we are responsible for wrestling at the same time of adopting the things we can't, we are denying the things we actually have control and power over, which is our own boundaries, which we're pissed poor at. I am already feeling the sense of depression and regret um, 
from the perspective of a parent who would be trying to protect their child and trying to control the environment, trying to control behaviors by, well, let's get them a car. Um, that way, that way they'll ha- and tell them we're not paying for insurance. So they'll have to get a job. So, I mean, is that one perfect or not? Like, like I get, I get now I'm, I'm seeing it, you know, that, that uh, uh, if, if we give them this layer of responsibility, they will suddenly show up to it. Um, we have no evidence that they can handle less responsibility than that. So the, 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 uh, but now I feel like a parent's going, well, then what are you just saying that I just stop trying to provide evidence that things can, can change? Yes. In a word, yes. That's exactly what we're supposed to do, which is not, we're supposed to pave the way for them to learn in the best way that they can not take charge of how they're going to do the learning because they may be a different style learner than we are, but we don't really make room for that. Like, because I could do this, I think my daughter can do this. Because I rise to this challenge, I am under this delusion because she's from me that she clearly will follow suit and do the same things I would have done at her age, which is untrue. Wow, you have just, you have just like unearthed something that no one thinks about is about just about different learning styles. Like, like that's incredible. Yeah. And that's not even considered that, that this person learns things differently than I do. So how on earth, the fact that this Google article about the, the actual dangers of marijuana might convince me that's not how they learn. Mm-mm. No, some people are kinetic learners. Some people are, you know, visual learners. Some, you know, they're all different kinds of styles. My daughter's a very different learner than I am. So the fact that I could read an article and really take that to heart and do something with it, the fact that she might, she doesn't even like reading. I love reading. Right there is a, like a huge difference in just learning styles. She doesn't learn by reading. She doesn't. She learns by doing. So guess what she's going to have to do? Fall down. And I'm not going to stop her because that would stop her learning. So once again, as an, as a parent putting myself in this position, I feel helpless. Mm -hmm. I feel like I actually have no control, which brings back all the fear of life and limb that my kid's going through that I'm going to lose them. So, all right, before we tackle that one, what are some of the other things that uh, you, you talked about that if I show you this evidence, you'll stop? So let's, let's hit another thing that you see the CEOs do that uh, uh, tends to be a pretty common piece mm-hmm. that if a parent's listening and you say it and they go, oh, crap, that's what I do. Well, my kid needs this phone that I pay for because that's how I keep him safe. He can't call me for help if he doesn't have the phone that I'm paying for and the car that I'm paying for, and the house that I'm paying for and providing the room in. And he doesn't have to contribute to any of it because he can't. But I'm expecting him to do all of these other behaviors like a responsible human when he's only proven, he or she's only proven that they're not capable of that just yet. But I'm delusional enough as a CEO to think that I give Johnny the car, the phone, the house, the all of this, and I don't make him responsible for any of it. And then I'm mad when he's not responsible for any of it. I'm mad when he's not responsible for any of it. He never has been. That's my delusion. That's my issue. What if the parent has provided um, 
a lot of things already. Like the parent really hasn't prepared the child for adulthood. Yeah. And now and we're at you know, a child, not an adult. And that's right. I mean, right? This is yeah, this yeah, yeah. And and I and I I agree with that. And so much of the teaching with teen parents is to say the protection days are over. Now it's pre preparation days, and the best thing to do is catch that as early as possible so that you can have the child fail in a relatively safe environment, the home. So now we've got an 18 year old, 19 year old, 22 year old living in the basement, hasn't had a job in a year, has nothing but excuses, plays video games you know, 16 hours a day, eats the food upstairs. Um, you, the, you've, you've provided the phone, you've provided the car, you've provided the food, you've provided all this stuff. And we have to cut it. We have to cut bait here. Yeah. And do you, do you suggest cold turkey? I, I, or do you suggest a, a process? Do, is there a process of elimination? Just like instead of the electric company, when you don't pay the bill, they just shut it off versus they just dim your light slowly over three months. Like how, do, how do you coach a parent to say, Hey, this 23 year old living in your basement uh, for the next birthday, give them luggage. Like, how do you do, how do you right. do it? Um, I think it's on a, it, this is going to sound, of course, not helpful, which is it's on a case by case basis. However, yeah. I do feel like that is somewhat true in the sense that this kid is not like that kid. And what this kid has had is not like what that kid has had. And what this kid's doing over here is not what that kid's doing over there. So I think it's really on a, if the parents are angry, resentful, which usually they are by this point, they're, why aren't they, you know, why aren't they respecting me and all the things that I give them? And don't they see that? And they're, they're resentful, really. It's growing resentment towards their child by all the things that they are providing. I would suggest writing it all back, having a very frank conversation with their kid, just saying, look, there's a new, there's a new sheriff in town and this is what this is going to look like. And you're going to participate in this family if you're going to live under this roof. You have a free choice to not live under this roof. So now comes up two things for parents. Fear that the child is going to say, fine, I'm out of here. And I'm using a guy's voice because that's the voice I had. Um, and they leave and starve to death on the street with a needle in their arm. And, uh, you know, uh, God knows what else that the parent and this is something that you and I will, will talk about, but I always envision the mother envisioning this, you know, that, that my, my baby boy is going to, my baby girl. Yeah. So we've got the fear piece. How do you cancel the parent with the fear piece of that? If, if I cut the supply and provisions, they will starve and perish. Um, my, what I always say, and this has unfortunately become true many times, which is I'm afraid they're going to go out and OD and they're going to be yes. dead on the side of the road and they're going to eat eating cat food and that's all they can afford. And I'm, it's, it's laughable because if you look at any addict, and I'm sure you can attest to this, they are the most resourceful human being <laughs> I've ever had in my life where you can put somebody, this happened. Guy went to treatment. He decides to jump out of the cab on the way to treatment. He decides to literally jump out of the cab, no shoes, no clothes, no money. And sure enough, within two weeks, his family found him wandering Arizona. He had shoes, he had a place to stay. He had plenty of provisions. He had all of the things he could drink and use that he ever wanted. 
So my little tale is only to say that your kid can end up ODing in your house under the roof that you're providing in the bed that you've bought with the food that you fill his belly with and you've only co-signed on the death certificate, essentially. And that seems really harsh and cruel. It's the truth. Your kid can OD and perish in your own home, just as likely, and probably more so. Because you keep enabling yeah. the behavior. You, You're saying it's okay. Trying to keep them like, alive, trying to keep them fed, trying to keep them with provisions is actually making it easier for them to use. Yes. And why would they have to change? What have you done to tell them that you're not okay with their behavior? Well, don't all the lectures and the tears and the screaming and everything, doesn't that take it? Doesn't that take the place of actually having to teach them a hard lesson? If they love me, they would change. Right. And if that's the whole thing, if they're, they're assuming if my loved one loved me back the way I love them so clearly, they would stop doing what they're doing. But what they're, I mean, believe me, I had data, I had articles, I had information galore about why he should stop doing what he was doing. I was providing everything. I would hoop and holler and scream and yell and rant and rave. And I mean, it was just, and if any of that was effective for six years, it would have been effective at one point. It was never effective. Never, never. It was never going to be. The only time he got help, the only time I gave him the chance to get help was when I backed out of my process with him, when I backed out of my part, when I backed out of enabling and I said, fine, I changed the lock with your power tool while you're at work, your key no longer works and you're gonna have to go figure it out yourself. The best, I hold my ex-wife in a level of esteem and respect for being the only one of us to have the strength, tenacity and courage to leave me, yeah. to leave the situation, to end it. The only way she was left with ending it because for the 10 years we were together, uh, nothing else was working and it was getting worse. But when I went out of a town, out of town to work at a Renaissance festival that she was going to join me later while I was out of town, she bailed, she bailed over the phone and she took the daughter and she said, I'm out. I'm leaving the house. I took everything that matters and I've thrown everything else away. I'm out. And she saved our lives by doing that. Oh, did I hate her? Yes. She saved our lives. Yeah. I remember my husband was so angry and you can't do this and this isn't right. And you know, F you and you're just a bitch. And I mean everything under the sun. Right. And by that point I'd heard it all anyway. I'd heard it all. Um, what I knew is I could no longer do this part. I, I didn't do this to get him sober. I didn't do this to evoke change, which is what I had done for six years. Everything else I did was to get him to do something, right? There was a motivation of if I do this, if I make this move with this pawn, he's got to come with, you know, the queen or the rook. And it was always for the back-ended, um, what is he going to do if I do this? If I take this step, um, surely he'll have to take this step. So it was always, it was never about me. Um, when I locked him out, it was the first time I had actually done something for myself. And I did it not to get him sober or clean or happy or healthy. I had done it because I was miserable and I was no longer willing to participate 
in the destruction that had been become us. Was he, was he able to take that modeling and realize that his decision to get clean was for himself and not for his marriage and not for you and not for his child? Yes. Yes. Um, when I, I didn't, so I wouldn't speak to him. <laughs> um, I told him that until he went to treatment, I had nothing to say. I wouldn't answer the phone. I had friends answering the phone. I let it go to voicemail. I wouldn't let him speak to his daughter. I wouldn't let him see his daughter. Shame on me. I know that's terrible, but was it? So, um, I mean, drastic situations call for drastic measures. And for me, it felt like if we were going to pull out of this, not we as a married couple, if my daughter and I were going to pull out of this situation with some form of together and feeling whole and healthy as humans, that I had to take a drastic situation um, and meet it. So essentially, um, I locked him out. He, I didn't do it to get him sober. Uh, I told him to go sleep wherever he was sleeping until five in the morning, um, the times he would be gone, which he was often. And um, I, it was unfair, all this stuff. Once he got in treatment, I then um, said, fine, now you can come over and see your daughter. And he would have visitations with her. He didn't live with us for a good long time. And the plan wasn't for him and I to ever work out. It was for him to be a, a good person first and a good dad for our daughter. That was the only thing I cared about. And he and I, I kept saying the jury was out. And it was out for probably a good two years following that. You're able to relate this story pretty coolly, nice and calculated. Uh, there's your, your emotional experience is very well regulated as I'm, as I'm able to watch the video and listen to your voice. So I'm imagining that you were nice, cool, calculated, calm, professional the entire time through this, right? <laughs> oh, oh, for sure. How did you see that? Absolutely. I wasn't <laughs> ranting and raving. I wasn't a lunatic. I wasn't crying uh, all the time. I wasn't heartbroken that the marriage I thought I'd entered into, which was the same one from day one. So again, I was delusional from the beginning. This was a me issue, not a him issue. Um, his addiction issues were, was really, that was his issue. And I had so combined it where it became my issue and my thing to deal with that I had lost sight of everything. If you asked me what I'd like to do for myself, I would look at you with like a blank stare and go like, what does that even mean? My life was consumed with what he was doing or not doing. Can we, can we also restate and reiterate that all this was going on for you while you have a PhD in psychology? I was on my way to getting one. So yes. You were, you were, oh, even better. You actually had the textbook yeah. in your lap the whole time. Right. right. Mm -hmm. so yeah. That yeah. really does let parents off the hook because I'm listening to you talk. And if you had, if I had come to you as a professional, with you being a prof in, a, in a professional relationship with me, and I said, I'm going through all this stuff and with my child. And he was like, well, you need to stop doing this and stop saying this and stop doing this. Being someone who runs a facility and teaches parents, I would feel tremendously guilty and stupid and insane. Mm -hmm. And it helps me to think that you were going through this, like I said, jokingly, with the textbook in your lap of how to do this right, how to counsel people through this. Absolutely. And, and I think that was the biggest part of my own shame was I should have known better. 
I should have known better. If every mother, if every father wants the best for their child and they find out that their behaviors are actually keeping their child sick and stuck, Mm -hmm. the guilt and shame is overwhelming. So then what? They come see you, they come talk to me and you're just like, okay, well now I've completely blown it. I'm responsible for 50% of what my kid's going through. Great. Now what? Now that 50% that you are responsible for, you get to take charge of and now do it in a different way, in a way that's going to be effective for everybody. Um, Rather than continuing the same dance, I think this is about learning what the new dance needs to look like um, and how empowering it will feel and freeing once you start engaging with it. Um, The freedom part of not having to obsess over what your loved one's doing, what they're not doing, where they are, where they're not, Um, Did they show up for work on time? Did they show up for work at all? I mean, all of those things that we get consumed with, just like they're consumed with their own behaviors, their own um, addictions, their own whatever, they're consumed. Um, We are consumed with them in the same way. And that's, again, back to the parallel process that we are no different than them. And we know in order for the addict to change, they have to first put the substance down. We have to first put our loved one down. As a, as a, as if they're our job, they're not. You mean you stop? You have to stop carrying them everywhere. Yeah, and then expecting but, them. Why can't they walk? Well, because we, we've been carrying them for so long that they no longer know how. So I think one of the places that parents get uh, mixed up is the, is learning the difference between carrying your child and caring for your child. So so how, when you're in the middle of all the crap that's going on with this loved one, a a spouse, a partner, a child, how do you tell the difference? Well, if you've been doing it all wrong and someone says, okay, now how do you look at everything you do and say, this is good for them. This isn't good for them. I think when, when you're able to step back and go, do I need to be doing that for them? Do I need to be making the doctor's appointments for them? Do I need to be uh, checking in up on school for them? And if they turn in their paper or not, did I, I mean, do I have to be doing these things or is this, am I trying to take on pieces that are not mine to own and have? And I think when we can extract ourselves long enough to start going, wait, what is my part? What really is my part versus what I used to think my part was very different, very different. I go now, oh, I don't know, you know, even with my daughter, She's like, look at my good grades. Great. Those are hers to earn and own. She can own it all because I've had no part in that except for being like, oh, you need something. You, oh, you need a tutor. You need to, you know, bounce something off of me. When she asks for my help, mm, and there's maybe the key. When somebody asks for help, rather than you just giving unsolicited advice, which always sounds like criticism, always. Okay. There was something that you brought up when you and I first talked on the phone about a month ago when we were talking about doing this show um, that blew my mind. And I really want parents to hear this part because I, I alluded to it earlier, this idea that the, there's a 23-year-old son and he's smoking pot in the basement, plays 18 hours of video games all day, and mom's making sure his, his uh, chicken fingers are cooked and he's got the right amount of ketchup on his plate and the soda's cooked nice and cold. And then feeling very frustrated and lecturing later about how he needs to go out and get a job and will he ever be happy and spending up sleep nights. Because I asked, and that's my, that's my image of the enabling parent. And I remember asking you, what is the demographic of 
an enabler of a, mm. of a chief enabling officer. And you said. The father. <laughs> I just, I, and I was like, what? Like every man I talk to, every parent who is a man that I talk to, that finger is pointed right at the mom. Always, always. And I think because we're the most demonstrative about it, we're the ones who are going to say, you know, um, we're the ones who are going to get uh, probably overtly resentful to our child, the 23-year-old who's smoking pot in our smoking pot that we probably give him the money to buy smoking it in the basement. We're letting him sleep. And let's just be clear on that. Right. Right. And the video games that we're providing for him too. Um, Eating the chicken fingers that mom or dad have gone out and bought. Yeah, sure. Right. So we do that. So we're doing that overtly. And then dad is typically working um, in this traditional family model. Yeah. Dad's working. Dad's usually in a power position and um, is so disappointed in what's happening. He can't language it. It's just a felt sense. The son knows that dad's disappointed, which only further exacerbates the issues with the son and makes him smoke more pot because he doesn't know what to do with the feeling sense that's so tangible in the room with that. The interactions, I'm sure, speak volumes. And dad is really acting out of fear. Total fear. Complete and utter fear. So our... Are you kind of pointing finger at the model where the the masculine partner, be that the dad or uh, the masculine feminine partner, has compartmentalized the situation, they ignore it until they blow outwards and all the anger and judgment comes out and it's just nothing but disappointment, then they go back into shutdown mode. That that in and of itself is enabling as well. Right. The How act as if I haven't seen everything. I'm going to act as if I've, um, I haven't been a party to this because clearly mom has mom's been a party to it. So he can point the finger at her, look at all these things. Well, you bought him the chicken fingers and you let him drive the car and all this stuff. Meanwhile, dad just vacant, just absent usually from the whole situation until things get bad enough. And when things get bad enough and I go, well, time to tell Johnny to move out that he can no longer smoke pot in your basement that you're not gonna condone this any any further. Mom goes, okay, and mom's, all right, good. We're gonna tell Johnny, he's gotta get out then. If he's gonna smoke pot, he's moving out. Dad will not hold to it. Mom will. And that's why dads are, I think, the worst enablers is because mom will suddenly hold boundaries that she's never held before when given a little bit of tools and like guidance around it. Dad will be given firm direction. Do not let him back in. You must make him leave, and he will not do it. Will not do it. That's not what the dad said. The dad said he was going to do it. The dad keeps pointing finger at the mom, saying she won't hold the boundary, she won't hold the boundary. But you're saying at zero hour, it's the dad who backs down. Zero hour, it's the dad who will absolutely back down. What? Like this This goes against Every the time. whole caricature over and over and over again even with a guy who was was a 54 year old son he was still living with his 80 some odd year old parents drinking his face off they're resentful that he's drinking his face off i'm like well you're housing him he's 54 come on guys like at what point are we cutting his legs off underneath him and then telling him to walk so he can't have a chance to stand up on his own his 54 year old legs 
if you don't let him stand up on them, if you keep putting a wheelchair underneath them going, yeah, let me roll you around for a while. And then I'm gonna be resentful that I have to roll you around. So when push came to shove, mom's like, yep, he's out. He goes to treatment, he's out. Dad, nope, let him right back in, right back in. Every time dad let him back in, dad, is the one. It was, oh. I can convince moms all day. They come in really angry. It's not my problem. Uh, I've tried all this stuff and they come in angry and white hot. Once you get them to simmer down and give them some guidance, they'll do it. They'll hold boundaries. You teach them how to do them. You teach them where to find their boundaries. They'll hold them. Dads, nope, nope. And they usually don't show up to family sessions either. Yeah. In case my little absentee father thing wasn't real. There it is. It shows up over and over again. Wow. And I mean, mother and father, not really by gender, because I clearly can embody the male parts of my relationship very well. Um, but as I embody the male parts, I notice that I'm more absent. I'm the compartmentalization of the, of the masculine brain, the ability to, to segment things and not keep them connected in in uh, 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 not opposition, but in comparison to the feminine brain that keeps everything connected, that, that one thing does affect another and the butterfly effect, whereas the, the masculine brain says, but, you, but if we separate it, if I can separate this pain from this hunt, if I can separate this hunt from this home, you know, th then I can focus and actually accomplish. And it's, it's just basic DNA design to, to make sure that we're able to accomplish the things that we're part of our primordial makeup. And I don't, I don't use it as the man woman thing. It's just that, that, you know, the, the gender piece is often connected to the masculine feminine brain. So now we're here recognizing that this enabling thing, that's that, that I just want to say that's pretty empowering to, I know a big part of my audience is moms. I'm seeing my, my demographic of beyond risk and back change, which is great. I love having dads online because I love involved dads. Um, and I know that a, a majority, 70% of my audience is moms. Um, I like hearing that moms can be let off the hook because there is a point that they do commit to saying, I'm not going to enable that because that is truly motherly love that, that I'm going to, I am actually, I need to show real love to my child and stop this behavior by stopping my enablement of this behavior. So now we got mom and dad. It's obviously that, that there's gotta be unified relationship work. It's not always that, um, they're going to, they may be separated. They may be, you know, the, the kid can start triangulating them and that's a whole nother show. Um, how is it, what is the best way for a parent to break their enablement habit? Once they have found themselves saying, oh man, there's my list of everything that I do that allows them to keep doing this behavior. What is it that you advise parents to What's, what's the daily discipline of no longer enabling your kid? I think that really comes down to knowing where your boundaries are and holding them. Like and I, keep, I tell everyone, boundaries are not to punish the other person. Um, it can be perceived that way by the other person, and that's their prerogative. That's their choice. We don't have any control over how our boundaries are perceived by somebody else. But it's our job to have them because nobody can have them for us. People can't walk over your boundaries. We give them away. Boundaries are to keep me safe, happy, and healthy. 
They're for me. They're only mine. They're all mine to hold and uphold and live by. And if I don't, it's no one's fault but my own. Nobody can walk over my boundaries. I have to give them away. And that's something that people in an addictive pattern, in a, uh, you know, a scenario like this, an enabling kind of muddy watered scenario, it's very easy for, nobody has boundaries by that point. Nobody. The addicted loved one doesn't have boundaries. The parents don't have boundaries. Nobody's holding any firm boundaries. Everybody's angry, resentful, and most of all, fearful of everything. And they're driven by that. Instead of just going, because I love myself and I love you, I'm willing to hold a boundary and have you perceive me maybe as a jerk or an asshole. That's okay. I'm okay with that as long as I'm holding the boundaries, knowing exactly why I'm holding them and I'm holding them for myself, not for you. Again, we're going to get away from doing things for other people. We need to hold boundaries for ourselves. Okay. So, so that's good. And, and boundaries are big work. That's not a small little thing that you're going to be able to figure out with your journal in an evening. This is, this is something that's going to take a lot of work, but as long as you're doing your boundary work, you're moving away true boundary work. Cause again, you said it, it's for you, not them. If it's for them, you're back in the, and, and I guess this is where I want to start talking about codependency. But if the, if the boundaries are for me and only me, and only mine to keep me safe, to keep me feeling good, to keep me uh, uh, feeling worth, you know, connected, freedom, safety, power, that that's good. And that that's, that's a time consuming job. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to face your own childhood crap. Like that, that's a, that's a, that's a deep dig. Um, so now let's, let's talk about what we had mentioned at the front of the show about codependency. You know, how enabling sounds a lot like codependency. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it different? How, how do you separate the two? From my perspective, only because I, I was an amazing CEO in my own life, um, codependency looks like I put your needs first, right? You come before me. Um, I didn't feel like in my marriage in those first six years when the addiction was florid and rampant. Um, I didn't feel like I put his needs first, but what I did do is I made sure that I cushioned every blow that he would encounter, that every consequence of his actions, I would make sure I had a pillow underneath him so he wouldn't land quite as hard. Um, and that really is what enabling looks like often. Can um, you give it, give, give a little bit more tangible example of that? I'm picking up what you're saying, uh-huh. but when I, yeah, what what do you mean? Like, what did you do with your husband? How would a how would a parent be doing that with their kid? Um, for example, um, I uh, I didn't go to work one night because he had been so sick, uh, throwing up all day from tying one on the night before that I had to stay home from work to take care of our kid because he was too disabled because of what he had done to himself. I called in for to his work for him to say that he had to stay home to take care of me. So, okay. So a, you covered his butt from oh, his yeah. job. B, you didn't go to your job. Nope. C, you ran referee between him and the kid. Yeah. You lied for the, okay. That's okay. Now yeah. I get Doesn't that. Doesn't that sound like addiction? Yeah. Right. It's, so that, it's that's, what did you call that? That's the, um, Parallel process. Parallel process. The, the same we're, level of insanity. Roped, yes. We are roped into the same 
level of insanity, except we are where the addict can recognize it. Oh yes, I've got a problem. I drink, use too much. I whatever, too much. We don't see that we're loving too much and in a really unhealthy, destructive way. We don't recognize it. So it's very hard for us to get help until we recognize what's going on because what we do looks like love. So was that, was that your codependent behavior or was that your enabling behavior? Uh, enabling, enabling for sure. Um, okay. I was putting him before me. I never felt like I put him ahead of me. I just would make sure that while he was trailing behind me, that he wasn't tripping and falling too much. Got it. And that his daughter wouldn't look at him like X, Y, and Z. And that his boss wouldn't look at him like the truth. And nobody, I would cover. I would play smoke screens often. If you've got siblings in the house, so, so you've got a parent who's, uh, you know, dealing with the, you know, 20-year-old uh, addict living in the basement playing video games, but you also have a 14-year-old son who's watching the whole thing going on or a 14-year-old daughter, what tends to be the results for the siblings who are watching enabling behavior go on? It's funny. Um, I just went to this whole presentation um, about the well sibling and... Um, and the well sibling looked like the one who was not the one with the mental health issue that was hijacking the house or the addiction issue that's been hijacking the house. And the well sibling ends up uh, manifesting in all kinds of ways. I think I'm a great case in point for this. Um, they typically are overachievers. They control a whole lot of things and they typically have eating disorders that come on board. Um, they felt lost. They, they feel like uh, you know the lost child in the family dynamics stuff. They're the lost child. They're the hero, the lost child, the scapegoat. They're, they become the everything. And they take on the responsibility for the family that I can't do anything to rock this boat. I'm now in charge of making sure that this boat has homeostasis and equilibrium. Wow. So we can imagine how the siblings take on and manifest in all kinds of ways. If you look at an older addict child, um, with mental health issues, hijacking the family, all of that. And then you look at a younger sibling, as you described, watching the whole thing unfold. Um, they will typically show the traits that I just described, if not all of them. <laughs> okay. Holy moly. Like, like there, there are topics in here that are their own, I want to say show, but it's more like series. Um, <laughs> but we're, we're, coming on the around the, the edge of the show here. Uh, how is it that people who are in this situation can, can get in touch with you, seek your advice, connect with you on social media? What, how do people find you? Um, I am on LinkedIn, but if that's not a good uh, way to find me, um, my cell phone is always on, always willing to take phone calls from anybody for advice or I need treatment or my loved one needs treatment or I don't know what to do. Um, my, my life is spiraling out of control. Um, I'm here to just be an ear, um, maybe provide some guidance. And, um, my ultimate hope is to help extract you from the chaos that is being created. By all of do you want to, do you want to give out that number? Sure. 925-948-5027. Now you and I also spoke because you help uh, with placement, you you assist families in finding a good place for their uh, loved one. 
Right. That's really, I think right now, the majority of the time I spend is doing that um, because I know that when I, of course, was going to help my husband get treatment because I was doing the CEO thing. I was going to handle it all, including getting yeah. him treatment. Um, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know a lot. And mo most people don't really know how the system works. It's very confusing. They're already stressed about what's happening. And the last thing they can do is like figure all this out, including insurance and benefits and how to use all of this. So um, I am a free resource to anybody in need um, anywhere. And I'm, I'm, you know, I work for Constellations Behavioral Health. I do this. They pay me basically to be a free resource out there for treatment options and resources. So um, that's my larger way of providing as much as I can in a bigger way than I could in, let's say, a private practice or in another position where this allows me to cast a much wider loop than I could otherwise. So, and I love it. It's very fulfilling for me to do that. So people can contact me from anywhere and I will probably find a resource for them if I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. So a parent has listened to this show. Yeah. The dad's listening to the show and has been pointing fingers at the at the wife and suddenly realizes he's pointing in the mirror or the mom's been listening and we've just described who's living in her basement and she's busy cooking them chicken fingers right now. Um, what What is your kind of parting piece of advice for someone who's needs to recognize fully and truly or has recognized fully and truly that they are the CEO of the family. What's, what's the first bit of advice that you can give them that's going to help them take that next step forward? I think, um, try to establish some boundaries, even just one, one new one going forward would be helpful. Um, like Johnny's not going to be able to play video games eight hours a day under your roof. It's your roof. So start looking at what do I really want out of this? And what am I really upset and angry about? And usually fearful most about, because that's what's driving the whole system. If you can figure out what you're afraid of, maybe you can figure out how to stop doing what you're doing because it's only creating more issues ultimately. So it could be, you know what, Johnny, you're not playing video games eight hours. This new house rule is that's not what we're doing. You want to live here? This is the new rule. He cannot like it. That's his choice. Doc, this is, uh, you're good. You're good at this. I, you're, you're really good. You're, you've got great podcast voice. You're, I want to talk to you about some stuff off air about this. Um, but this has been amazing. Thank you so much. I'm, we need to have you back on. We're, we're going to, we're going to stay in touch, but this is, uh, this has been huge. This has helped me out. Uh, in a lot of ways, looking at, I'm, I'm seeing in the, the well sibling, I'm looking at my brothers when you went through that list and I was like, holy oh, yeah. moly. Me. It was me. Yeah. I was, you know, disordered eating. I was anorexic. I was straight A student. I was the, I mean, I was the mold of what happens in the face of somebody with addiction and mental health issues in the house who is covertly and overtly hijacking the whole system. Um, yeah. You know, and I, of course, then I, married an addict because I know my relationship really well. <laughs> so, you know, and that, and we often end up doing that if we don't take care of our stuff and we don't look at um, the system and what we've absorbed for ourselves and how that's manifested in our lives today. Um, if we don't look at those things, we're just going to be on the merry-go-round for a long time. Yeah. It's not a fun ride. Wow. All right, Doc, stay on the line while I sign off. What a show. What a show. Thank you so much. Thank stay on the so line much. for a second. Absolutely. Oh,
Absolutely my pleasure. All right. Hang on there, Doc. Okay. Moms and dads. Um, you know, those types of shows, they feel they're hard because you're, you're, you're hearing yourself described, you're hearing your childhood described and we get a lot of, you know, frustration, anxiety, depression, guilt, shame, um, fear that, that we're in this situation. That's why these shows, that's why we bring these guests on and they give out their phone numbers, give them a call. If you are interested in participating in a parenting, a teen that struggles free webinar, uh, I want you to go to my website, firemountainprograms.com. I want you to click under uh, support and I want you to click under parent weekend and give me your name and email address so that I can send you information on our next free webinar. We just finished a free webinar on parenting teens that struggle. We had a great showing. I want you to be a part of it and it's free. The support is out there. Finding people who are willing to give their cell phones online and one more time. Her phone number is 925-948-5027 and that's, that's Dr. Katie Parker and she can help you find a place. But the entire show, when she was talking about boundaries, when she was talking about uh, both things that, that parents do, whether it's in codependency, whether it's enabling, it comes right back to the mantra, doesn't it? You take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second. You take care of your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with the children. That is the standard mantra of Beyond Risk and Back. That is the standard mantra of what I've been giving parents. And when you're setting boundaries, I want you to remember what Dr. Katie said. It's not for them. The boundaries are not for them. It's for you. It's for your safety, freedom, connection, worth, power. It's, it's for you. That's a, that's a reframe of this. As always, thank you to Kristen Walker, the boss goddess at Mental Health News Radio Network. Man, we are a growing network. We have 12 million. That's with an M and a one-two in front of it. 12 million listeners worldwide. And thank you to the parents for making Beyond Risk and Back Colorado and Australia's number one parenting podcast. And guess what? We're taking on Canada. It's pretty amazing. I am watching numbers in Canada. You Canadian parents, thank you so much for passing me around because we are taking over in Canada. Folks, you know the mantra. I'm not going to go through it again. Thanks for listening to Beyond Risk and Back. I will see you next week. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.